Welcome back, everybody, to Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast. This is Josh. With me tonight, as always, is Luca. Luca, how's it going tonight? Doing fantastic. I'm really excited for this week. Uh, this was a this was a different one. This was a fun one to really dive into. So I'm excited to get talking about. Well, what Luca is referring to is we are back with our Rivals Watch series. The last couple episodes we've done, we have broken down what we're doing with Rivals Watch just as a, a long view is we're breaking down the Bills schedule in chunks, taking deep dives into teams that are kind of like-minded. So the first episode, we did the NFC North teams. And then last week, we did the first place schedule teams, the Titans, the Chiefs, the Ra- the Rams. Um, we invite you to go back and listen to those if you missed them. Uh, we take this fairly serious. We we spend a good chunk of the week deep diving into these teams, trying to get our our hand on the pulse of what these teams are going through, the strategy they've had this offseason. And Luca and I agree that there may not be any more interesting division in the entire league than the division we're going to cover tonight, which is the AFC North. The Baltimore Ravens, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Cincinnati Bengals, and the Cleveland Browns. Luca, um, before we get into the AFC North, though, we you know we always kick it off with a little bit of Bills news, and I think the biggest Bills news is we are now single digit days away from the Bills' first training camp practice. Rookies reported to mini camp, or mini camp. Rookies reported to training camp on Monday. And the first practice that's open to the media is this coming Sunday. So I know you're not the biggest training camp guy. I'm a little different. I like to scroll through Twitter, follow the Matt Perinos, the Joe Biscalias, um, listen to the different podcasts, Buffalo Plus. Um, I also really like Matt Perino's Shout Buffalo podcast. I, we sent a tweet out earlier this week of different avenues we would recommend you doing. If you're not able to attend training camp, I highly recommend you check out that blueprint. But I am a big training camp guy, not so much like back in the day where EJ Manuel was like, hey, is he a good quarterback? Let's see what his completion percentage is at training camp. We're we're way past that phase of our lives. But I do want to hear things like, how is Kyir Elam looking? What are they doing with James Cook? What are they going to show us they're going to do with James Cook? Um, What is someone like Tommy Doyle looking like? He's a guy that is an injury away from being a very important player on this team, potentially. Um, is Spencer Brown able to practice or is he going to start on PUP? Things like that really interest me. Luca, how clued in are you going to be to these, these long Twitter days of training camp? Uh, not as much as you, I'll, I'll definitely give you a nod on that one. I don't think, uh, many people I know will be as in tune with training camp as you are, but, (laughs) um, what I will say is the thing that I look at and you obviously just kind of talked about it in a little more detail is the thing I look at with training camp this year is, is our depth and that amazing depth that seems to be recognized by all media outlets. Is it actually as good as it seems to be? I mean, Tommy Doyle, uh, James Cook, like all those names exactly right. Like, do they look as good as we hope they can be? And does that make us as complete of a team as some of us believe us to be, or a lot of us believe us to be? And I think training camp's kind of like a good starter to see, are those pieces, are those depth pieces, are the people that are going to be backing up the key individuals in this team, are they as good as we think they are? Because realistically, this is some of the better time you can actually evaluate that and take a look before they may be needed down the road in key situations. So that's about as much as I'll be in tune with it. Um, I'm not going to go crazy. As you mentioned, I'm not the biggest training camp junkie myself. 
I like to make sure I'm at least up to date. I like to make sure I, you know, know anything of great note hasn't happened in a negative way or has happened in a positive way. Um, you know, about that. Um, I'm, I'm basically getting ready for preseason. And we've also discussed that I'm not the biggest fan of preseason football either because I like the highest of quality. And that, of course, is not that. But I am excited since we've started this new adventure that I will be diving more into preseason football. And so I guess with that, I probably should pay attention more to training camp so I know what I can be prepared for come that first preseason game against the Colts. So I guess there's that as well. To me, the biggest thing is every year without fail, some team has a devastating injury just in the middle of a training camp practice. Somebody blows out their ACL. I mean, it happened to the Bills one year where Reggie Raglan was injured. It happened to Jordy Nelson in a preseason game for the Packers. Um, there was a year where LaShawn McCoy messed up his hamstring a couple weeks before the opener, but he was still ready for the Colts game. So while you're scrolling through, while you're looking for updates on guys like Kair Elam and Tommy Doyle and things like that, you're also just panic scrolling, hoping that you don't see the Matt Perino say, uh-oh, the cart's coming out for player X. Like you just, you don't, injuries are a part of football. Everybody that watches the sport understands that is part of it. But you just hate to lose players, especially important ones, but players in general in meaningless situations, preseason games, training camp. You lose you lose a player to an injury in week four of the season against the Baltimore Ravens. It stinks for that player. It stinks for the team. But that's just kind of the price of doing business, the the attrition that comes along with playing football. But man, it's such a bad feeling when an important player goes down to injury in a practice or preseason games, which are organized practice. So that's certainly something that we'll all be clued into, hoping that the Bills and really every team around the league can stay as injury-free as possible here in the summer months as we ramp up training camp. All right, Luca, let's not put it off any longer. Let's get into the AFC North. And, you know, I was looking at this division, and I'm a big analogy guy. I like to come up with things that this division reminds me of, maybe in a different context. And Luca, I'm going to try this analogy on you and just let me know what you think of it. The AFC North to me is like a group of friends you have, maybe lifelong friends. What the Ravens and the Steelers are is they're your old reliable friends. Like in college, they were the friends that you never had to worry about showing up to class hungover. They always got their tests in on time. You knew they were going to graduate on time. They always dated you know, whether this is guys or girls, because, you know, it, they always dated, they always had partners that, you know, they always had their head on straight. And if they found somebody that, you know, wasn't right, they didn't stay in that relationship too long to where it became toxic. They moved on, they make good decisions. Once they got into their adulthood, you know, they, they get a good job. You could always rely on them. You never had to worry about getting a call from them at two in the morning that, you know, they'd gotten themselves into, into a lot of trouble. To me, even on their low days, their low days are stuff they can recover from because they've built this strong foundation in their life. And you just, you always know what you're getting with them. <clears throat> the Bengals, they're kind of like that slow developing friend, right? Like the friend that while the rest of you graduate college in four years, maybe it takes him five, six, seven years to graduate because he spent the first few years partying a little bit too much or slacking off or enjoying the fraternity life or dating the wrong people. Um, and then when it came time to go into adulthood, this was the friend that lived at his parents' house for a couple of years while the rest of you were going out and, um, buying your own house and 
getting into relationships and getting engaged and planning your family. This, this friend was still kind of living with his parents and going from like pizza delivery job to waiter job and, you know, just kind of pitter pattering around, not really, not really sure what they were doing. But then all of a sudden this friend that you're just not really sure what their direction is, they find something that really motivates them. It could be a, a great relationship. It could be a new passion for a profession and they excel at it. And before you know it, this friend is as successful, if not more successful than anybody in your friendship group. That leaves us with the Browns. The Browns are that friend that every time you see them, they have this great big idea for how this is going to be what turns their life around. That pyramid scheme, that next great thing. Like I'm telling you guys, invest in me now. This is going places. And then they sell you on it. And you might buy into it a couple times and then you're like, okay, well, we, we've, we've heard this story before. And then, you know, and then they, they get all invested in something and then it doesn't work out and then they're down for a while. And then they're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go work for this pyramid scheme. And then no, okay, that's not going to work either. Oh, wait a minute. I saw this ad on the internet that said that I can make 300 grand a year working from home. I'm going to sign up for that. This is no, that's not going to work either. And this is the friend that just can't get out of their own way. They always have the next big idea for what's going to be what's going on in their life. And then it just never works out. And while the rest of your friendship group is moving on into different phases of their life, whether it's family, whether it's professional, whether it's growing up, this is the friend that still continues to be held back. They always have all these great big ideas, whether it's we're going to sign Odell Beckham. We're going to we're going to tank for two years to draft Baker Mayfield and it, we're going to sign Jadavian Clowney and it just never works out. That is my analogy for the AFC North. Luca, how did that one set you? <laughs> you hyped this one up a little bit. You didn't tell me what it was uh, earlier in the week behind the scenes. Um, it's pretty spot on. I. I definitely think the uh, Ravens and Steelers, they're just all reliable, steady organizations, just doing the things that, you know, they know are right, continuously find success in the way they do things. I, I think everything you said was pretty, pretty spot on. It was a little harsh at a time to, you know, say that the Bengals are kind of just aimlessly going around, you know, delivering pies for four or five years and then figured it out finally. But that is kind of accurate also in itself. But the uh, the Browns one is, uh, yeah, they're always the get rich quick. How can we do this? What's the flashiest thing to do? This is the way it's going to turn around. You know, this is it, guys. This is it. This is how we make our money now. And it's it never pans out. It, it, it you know, I just you never understand it. So I well done. Well, a uh, uh, round of applause. Uh, that was well done. I, I, Thank you. I appreciated Thank you. that one. That was good. I, I think you did a great job with that. I think it was uh, pretty spot on for the most part. I'll try to talk you into the Bengals analogy when we get into the Bengals, but we are not starting with the Bengals. We are going to start with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, this is one of those teams we talked about that in that friendship circle was that reliable friend. And boy, have they been a reliable organization. Last year, notwithstanding, though, eight and nine and missed the playoffs. This team was absolutely ravaged by injuries, lost Lamar Jackson, starting offensive tackle Ronnie Stanley, J.K. Dobbins, even Gus Edwards was hurt for a while. They lost both of their starting corners, Marcus Peters and Marlon Humphrey. This team could just not get over the injury bug. Their head coach is John Harbaugh. He's been there for 14 seasons with a record of 137 and 88. He has made the playoffs nine out of 14 years 
old reliable, and they did win a Super Bowl in 2012. They are quarterbacked by Lamar Jackson, who was drafted the same year that Josh Allen was drafted in 2018. He was taken 32nd overall by the Ravens. He was actually their second first round pick. Their first one was Hayden Hurst, a tight end who is no longer with the team. Um, So the Ravens are one of the organizations you look to for stability and continuity, um, but they did have a rough year last year. They do bring back offensive coordinator Greg Roman, who has been there since 2019. There is some concern that maybe he's hit his ceiling as offensive coordinator. We have kind of seen this before where much shorter term in Buffalo, but we also saw it in San Francisco where the offense is booming for a year or two. And then when you really need it to expand, open up the passing game, it just isn't there. Um, The Ravens offseason has been, I would say, a bit of a head scratcher. So right now, the biggest thing going on with the Ravens is they are trying to come up with a long-term contract for Lamar Jackson that has not happened yet, and he is going into his fifth-year option. In free agency, their big-ticket item was Marcus Williams, the free agent from New Orleans, and they did manage to keep Calais Campbell in tow. They traded Marquise Hollywood Brown to Arizona on draft night, and now Hollywood Brown has not been a guy that's lived up to those high draft pick expectations. A lot of that has to do with injury. I think a lot of it has to do with scheme, circumstance. Um, But my issue with that trade, and we can get into it, Luke, is not necessarily the fact that they got a first-round pick for Hollywood Brown. I think that was a good value. It's what did they leave behind in the wide receiver room? They drafted a guy that Luca was very high on, Kyle Hamilton, in the draft. And with the pick they got for Hollywood Brown, they drafted the center, Tyler Linderbaum, who is going to start for them day one. And a sneaky, sneaky, sneaky good offseason signing they had was Morgan Moses, who has plenty of experience starting at tackle on this league and just gives them tremendous depth in case for some reason Ronnie Stanley is not ready to go at the beginning of the season. And then the last point, Luca, I want to get into on the Ravens is we talked about their offensive coordinator. They fired Wink Martindale, who I think was one of the better defensive coordinators in the league. He runs a blitz heavy system that's very reliant on cornerbacks. And he was dealt a shorthand last year with Marcus Peters and um, Marlon Humphrey being injured. So it's hard for him to run that scheme with backups and practice squad guys out there trying to cover. We saw that happen in the second Bengals game where the Bengals ran up the score on them because they couldn't cover anybody. And they hired Mike McDonald, who was the defensive coordinator at Michigan for John Harbaugh's brother, Uh, Jim, the head coach at Michigan, but he does have experience with John Harbaugh seven seasons with the Ravens prior to going to Michigan. And he does say he's going to keep some of that heavy, heavy blitzing going. So there is our Ravens overview. Missed the playoffs for a rare time under John Harbaugh last year. I just laid out the overview of the Ravens right off the bat. Luca, what are your thoughts on this team? They're going to be better this coming year, barring they don't also yet again get depleted by injuries. It's just Think of it this way. They lost Lamar even for a stretch of time where Huntley had to step in. They were without J.K. Dobbins all year. You mentioned they were also without uh, Ronnie Stanley all year. Like They just could not overcome the crazy injuries they just kept having. They didn't even have their entire starting corner room available, and yet they won eight out of their 17 games. I mean, they were essentially an old-school 500 team. And they were competitive every week. I mean, they were, they lost on a last, you know, minute drive 
to the Packers at home, I believe it was. And they came back to get it to that situation in the first place with Tyler Huntley at quarterback. I mean, they, they are, they were still a competitive team. So I will always say this about the Ravens and I will probably say this later about the Steelers as well. Good organizations are really good at bouncing back. That's kind of their thing. Um, if Lamar is healthy, they're going to be better than an eight win team. I would almost bet my house on it that there's no way with a healthy Lamar all season long, they're only going to win eight games. Um, what scares me the most is that Lamar, as you mentioned, still has not gotten that money. And even if he does finally get that contract, say the Ravens, you know, week before the season, finally lock him in, give him his big money. He gets the bag and everything's good. He will still be motivated to then prove that it was worth it. So I think it's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense of coming this year, Lamar is going to be a very motivated son of a bitch. And I think that is the scariest part of this team. It is confusing, though, when you go beyond that, what they're trying to do around Lamar. As you mentioned, their wide receiver room is interesting, to say the least. Rashad Bateman promising not exactly what I would define as a wide receiver one in this league. Uh, but unfortunately, due to everyone else out there, you know, uh, Devin Denervy or however you pronounce his name, James Proche, the second. I mean, it's just like I don't even. These guys, I don't even think would be starting anywhere else in the league, and yet they're going to be because that's who's available or who's just left on this team. That's what makes that Marquise Brown trade very odd. Um, but overall, I think they did smart things, like they addressed a center need that they saw clear as day and got maybe one of the best linemen in this draft. He's going to be a day one starter, and he's going to be perfectly fine in Linderbaum. And they're just going to keep the train rolling as best they can. The offense runs over on Lamar. And the other thing is, in my notes, as a notable arrival, you mentioned, you know, they signed Marcus Williams. They drafted, you know, they drafted uh, Kyle Hamilton, things like that. I wrote J.K. Dobbins as a notable arrival. He was not there all year. This offense with J.K. Dobbins we saw two years ago was a completely different beast than what we saw last year. And that is very good for the Baltimore Ravens. J.K. Dobbins makes this offense tick very well with Lamar under center and him behind him. It's it's a totally different thing. You can't be running the Lamar offense when you have the likes of a Le'Veon Bell or uh, who else did they sign off the street? I mean, they just basically were signing guys off the street to just keep it afloat. They had Latavius Murray at one point, right? Yeah, Latavius Murray, I think, was kind of their quote-unquote dynamic running back. And yeah, <laughs> Le'Veon yeah. Bell and uh, Devante... Um, Freeman Freeman. Thank you. It like, wow. It was just like, what are we? I mean, they couldn't do anything else. I mean, that's just unfortunately the cards they were dealt, but that's, I mean, it's going to be a breath of fresh air when all of a sudden you watch JK Dobbins come back out there. Hopefully he's healthy for that. And it does look like that. But I mean, even when Gus Edwards is back, I, I can't believe I'm even saying that they missed Gus Edwards, but in a way they probably did because at least he was better for the offense and was kind of a, I don't know, more dynamic <laughs> than Latavius. Murray. He's a tank. He's he's a beast. He's he's yeah. a big, big boy. Um, he's but not he's, Dobbins, though. You're right. No, exactly. He's not Dobbins. We need Dobbins or the Ravens need Dobbins. <laughs> and it's going to be a breath of fresh air, as I mentioned. And I think the Morgan Moses point you brought up as well. I think that was big. Like they had Villanueva at tackle last year, and he was obviously in his twilight years of his career. He was just kind of getting one more year out of himself. 
But I think Morgan Moses is actually going to bring a nice, you know, bookend stability to this offensive line that they kind of weren't able to experience last year. Obviously, it got even worse once Ronnie Stanley, because it was supposed to be Villanueva on right tackle, I believe, an open day, Stanley on the left, Stanley gets hurt, and then obviously Villanueva becomes your left tackle. And it's just, I mean, at that point, you can't be really doing that. So I think Morgan Moses is going to be an improvement to Villanueva in the first place. And then as long as Stanley can stay healthy on the left, left. That's a very nice bookend. So this Ravens team overall can still be very, very dangerous on any given day. It's just going to be also interesting between the offensive coordinator and, you know, ceiling that he already has seemingly gotten to on top of the lack of weapons out wide that this team has to see what they can do when it comes to putting up a lot of points. But Lamar can also kind of backpack. So it it's going to be. I don't want to discredit them. I don't want to be like, oh, I mean, they're just not going to be able to score a lot of points. They're not going to be able to able to outscore anyone with Rashad Bateman out there just because Lamar is that good. Number eight is that good and scary. And then their defense is their defense. If they're healthy, Marcus Peters comes back. Marlon Humphrey's there. They signed Kyle Fuller. Kyle Fuller was a shell of himself last year in Denver, but still, and I think he got hurt. But still, he has shown that he is a decent corner in this league. They signed Marcus Williams, as you mentioned. Um, uh, Kyle Hamilton will probably come in, in my opinion, halfway through the year and become a, an absolute you know, staple in the NFL. I think he's going to be a, you know, a starter, regular starter in the NFL by halfway through this year. Um, their linebackers are an interesting thing. They have Josh Bynes back. Uh, Patrick Queen is still there, who's shown flashes. Um, as you mentioned on the defensive line, they still have Clay's Campbell. It's a solid unit. Like they should be able to get stuff done. I'm very curious to see what the change at DC will do for this team. Um, but overall I would trust the names, you know, that they have to start out there to do a respectable job. So all in all, I think the Ravens are a much better team than eight wins. I don't know if it's a significant jump. Like, I don't know if they can be that 15 and one or whatever. Was it 14 and two when Lamar won the MVP? I don't think they can be that level of a team per se. I think eventually, obviously, wide receiver, you know, the little details will come into play and they can't win that many games. But overall, like, they will be a much, much better team this season, I would expect. And, you know, again, I just want to emphasize it one more time a motivated Lamar Jackson absolutely scares the shit out of me like it just terrifies me anytime he i mean he's gonna have the ball in his hands every snap and every time he touches the ball he can take it all the way he can do things of absolute magic with the ball in his hands so it's terrifying if he's motivated and confident and feeling good he can do anything i feel like and it's it's scary no not anything he can do a lot of things a lot of scary things and that enough is to scare me. Well, let's have a Lamar Jackson discussion now then. And let's also loop that in with a Greg Roman discussion because he's obviously a guy that has a history in Buffalo. And, you know, all due respect to Tyrod Taylor and Colin Kaepernick, I think everybody can agree. I know we certainly agree. Lamar Jackson is by far the most talented quarterback that Greg Roman has gotten his hands on. And what we have seen here in Baltimore is he came in in 2018 and he was really good. And then 2019, he was the MVP of the league. And look, for a podcast, I could sit here and read off a laundry list of stats. I don't know how interesting that is. So I just used QBR as a way to make a point without having to sit here and read numbers to you guys for five minutes. 
in 2019, when he won MVP, his QBR was 83. In 2020, his QBR dipped to 67.3. And in 2021, he did miss five games, but it was all the way down to 50.7. We both think Lamar Jackson's excellent. I think there's obviously cause for concern. Is there some regression going on there? But in my opinion, I think the arrow points much more at Greg Roman because we know he can build a power running game. We saw it in Buffalo when LaShawn McCoy and Carlos Williams were out there running over teams with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback. And now you have this dual threat, Lamar Jackson, who was an MVP as a runner and a thrower in the league. And he's a much better runner than Tyrod Taylor was with a J.K. Dobbins and an elite power rushing offensive line. They're going to be able to run the ball. But my question has always been about Greg Roman. What's his counterpunch when a team takes away the running game? We saw it in the playoffs with the Tennessee Titans the year that Lamar won MVP and they were one and done in the playoffs because the Titans took away the run game and they couldn't throw the ball. Is that a Lamar problem or is that a Greg Roman problem? We saw it in the Bills game, 17 to three. Lamar Jackson throws the game clinching interception to Teron Johnson, but that offense was going nowhere. And it's because the Bills committed to stopping the run and said, okay, Lamar beat us in the passing game and it didn't happen. So where do you stand, Luca? Is this a Lamar might be leveling off a little bit as an elite player or is this a Greg Roman issue? I point the finger more at Greg Roman personally. I think Greg Roman, not like he's trying to, but he hinders his own offense and hinders the abilities of the players around him, such as a Lamar Jackson at times, because all the dynamic plays that Lamar makes, you you can almost say it looks majority of the time like they're just off the cuff. He's just trying to figure something out. He's trying to make something happen. There's no way that that was by design. There was no way that Greg Roman, you know, is, you know, trying to drive the offense in a way that he just pulled that off, you know, and as you pointed it, pointed it out, I should say, um, Every time a team just fully commits and is like, Lamar beat us. And that is the problem with Lamar. I do want to say Lamar is not, you know, an exceptional passer. He is, you know, an average, we'll call it average to above average passer. I mean, I wouldn't, he, he's not the guy that I'm going to want to pick apart a defense. It's just in, you know, in reality, if you need him to make a throw, I'm still going to trust him to be able to make a throw from time to time. It's not probably going to be the primary point of an offense ever with Lamar Jackson, but he's not the type of player that you should be asking that for. You always want to use a player for their best asset asset. And that's clearly Lamar with the ball in his hand and is the threat of his legs, create the throw, create the throws and everything like that because of the threat of his legs, get him moving move around, things like that. And you almost feel like at times Greg Roman is not trying to utilize that kind of threat. He's not really utilizing that. And I feel like Ravens fans out there are are kind of at that point or they're starting to see that it's like you have this beautiful gem in Lamar Jackson and almost you're it's, it's almost like he's stubborn in a way, Greg Roman, where it's like, no, you're going to run my offense the way I want it. And it's like mold it to the abilities of your quarterback, which is just an unbelievable talent, especially the threat of his legs and everything that that entails. And then I bet you if you just at least kind of mold the passing game around that, you will find more success when teams are able to take away that power running game. Like if 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 you're not going to be able to run it consistently, you need to have that threat and ability of Lamar taking it outside or whatever else it may be to allow him 
to get something out of the passing game because having them just drop back and trying to pick apart defenses will never end in success. We've obviously seen that as you just brought up all those beautiful examples. So you got to do something else. And I think that is the fault of the offensive coordinator and the offensive staff as a whole. It's just, I think the regression of the QBR that you just brought up, it's partially on Lamar, but I would honestly lean more towards Greg Roman than Lamar. It's, it, I don't understand how a player could regress that much while still in their, we'll call it athletic prime. That wouldn't, to me, make sense. But what would make more sense is, you know, it, it's kind of like that whole thing. Like you, you hear it all the time where people are like, oh, defense has figured him out. I'm like, I don't think necessarily that it's they figured the player out. I mean, there are tendencies that players have always, things like that. Like it's like a tell at a point. Yeah. There are those things. But like it's I'll bring this, I'll bring another example in here. The Arizona Cardinals and Kyler Murray. It frustrates the shit out of me when people say they figured Kyler out. Defenses have figured Kyler out. I'm like, no. Defenses and defensive staffs have figured Cliff Kingsbury out. Ding, ding, ding. Like that is what they do. That's clear as day when you and everyone and the funny part is no one out there doesn't think that with the Cardinals. That is everyone yells at Cliff Kingsbury. Everyone's like, it's Cliff's problem. It's not Kyler. It's Cliff. So why is this any different? I don't understand why Lamar all of a sudden becomes the problem instead of Greg Roman. It makes absolutely no sense to me. So actually, as I talked myself into that example, which I did write down, I actually convinced myself even more that I believe it to be more on Greg Roman than Lamar. And it just, it bothers the shit out of me because Lamar is an unbelievable talent. He is a top 10 quarterback in this league. He's just not the most conventional top 10 quarterback in this league. Like, yes, if you're asking me who's a better passer between a Kyler or a Lamar, I'm going to tell you Kyler. But Lamar overall, I'd probably take over Kyler because the dynamic abilities that he possesses threatens a defense way, way more than a Kyler, in my opinion, if you do it the right way. And we've seen it already once before when he was a league MVP, what you can really get out of it. And it just blows my mind that the Ravens have stood pat with Greg Roman and just keep trying to do this whatever going on with Greg Roman. I don't get it. You know, Luca, we could have an hour long conversation on Lamar. We are so aligned on this for anybody that says that the league has figured out Lamar Jackson. Give Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Brian Dable, Sean Payton, give him Lamar Jackson. Give those guys Kyler Murray. Let's see how fast the leagues figured them out in those systems. I promise you it would be a lot different. Um, To me, yeah, I agree with you. I would take Lamar over Kyler. I don't even know if it's that close. I like Kyler. There's just something about Lamar Jackson. I don't want to say like a Michael Jordan-like vibe, but there's just there's just certain players in sports that at the end of the game, you could, they just have this will to win and will to carry their team to victory. And I know Lamar only has one playoff victory on his resume, but he has just done it time and time again in the regular season. He has to boost his postseason, obviously. He could be quarterback for my team any day of the week. We have Josh Allen. Obviously, we don't we don't want Lamar Jackson over Josh Allen. We're totally cool with where we're at. But you know, the same things that annoyed us about Josh Allen criticism with the the um, confirmation bias of certain people that almost seemed like they wanted Josh Allen to fail because they wanted to be right and they weren't admitting how good he was. It's almost 
worse for Lamar Jackson because there were people like Bill Polian who said he should be a wide receiver in the NFL and people who said he could only be an option quarterback. And you didn't mention it. Like he's not an elite passer. Like, no, he's not, he's not Matt Ryan. He's not Tom Brady. He's not going to go out there and just pick apart a defense from the pocket. But guess what? Defenses can't play the Ravens the same way they play Matt Ryan and Tom Brady because they're not afraid of those guys pulling the ball down and running 90 yards for a touchdown or making defensive ends who get free from offensive tackles look silly, keeping the play alive and throwing it downfield, much like we see our guy here do in Buffalo. We could have a lot longer Lamar Jackson conversation. I'm always up for it. I'm a big fan of him. I don't enjoy seeing Bills fans and Ravens fans getting into it on like which quarterback's better. Let's just join hands and laugh at the fact that Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield were picked ahead of both of these guys and Josh Rosen was picked ahead of Lamar Jackson. Uh, Luca, let's quickly talk about, I talked about defensive ends there on Lamar. One concern I do have about the Ravens is I'm not sure where their pass rush is going to come from. Their pass rush unit actually reminds me a lot of the Bills unit last year. They have that reliable veteran in Justin Houston, kind of like that Jerry Hughes role. They have the young player in Odafe Owe. He was Jason Owe up until the draft, and he changed to Odafe Owe, which confused me because I kept wanting to call him Jason. Um, you know, kind of similar to Greg Rousseau. They drafted David Ojabo out of Michigan in the second round this year. He probably would have been a first round pick had he not um, messed up his Achilles at the pro day. You know, that could be kind of like their boogie basham. But they still, to me, they lack that that high end, that Batman who's going to make it all make sense. I'm not sure who you necessarily fear on the Ravens when it comes to getting the quarterback down. And then one last point before I'll send it back to you for a final thought on the Ravens. When you look at the schedule, I think the Bills playing the Ravens early is going to work in their favor because, or it could work in their favor. I'm not going to say it's going to because I don't want to predict injuries, but there are some very notable names on this roster who very realistically could start the season on PUP. And with the Bills playing the Ravens the fourth game of the year, that would put them out of that game. Luca mentioned J.K. Dobbins. Ian Rappaport had a report this week that J.K. Dobbins is a PUP candidate. J.K. Dobbins then came back and said that's not true. We'll see what happens there. Um, Ronnie Stanley does not sound like somebody who's going to start on PUP, but again, player coming off of a devastating injury. Seems like he's going to be ready to go for camp, but one name to really keep an eye on. Marcus Peters. I was reading some stuff on the Ravens, listening to a couple of things. It sounds like at this point in time, maybe it's a flip of the coin if he's ready to go for the regular season or not. And even if he is ready to go, what Marcus Peters are we going to get? If he misses that game against the Bills, this secondary was already tested with depth. I don't know how they match up with the Bills on the outside. One other name to throw into this mix David Ojabo, the rookie they drafted out of Michigan, almost no chance he's ready to go by week four of the season. Excellent prospect, messed up his Achilles at the pro day, not going to be ready to go for the beginning of the season. So I think there's at least a chance that if certain things go in the PUP, I don't want to say in the Bills way, you never want to sound like you're rooting for injuries, but this is just, if you're doing analysis on the Ravens, this is part of the puzzle. There's a chance that the Bills catch them at the right time. Yeah. I mean, that. As you said, you never wish that, you never want it. But as you said, the fortunate reality of those players maybe not being ready come week four, that could benefit the Bills. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say on that. I think the J.K. Dobbins dunking on Ian Rappaport while Ian Rappaport was live on McAfee show, by the Hilarious. way, during that. 
so good. Just a great moment. Um, but if JK Dobbins is ready and, and you didn't even mention with him, but it goes without saying, like, even if JK Dobbins comes back and is ready week one, like, is he really going to be at a hundred percent week one? Is he going to be at a hundred percent by week four? You don't really know. So, uh, and it, it, you brought that up with Marcus Peters. It goes without saying with him as well. I mean, JK Dobbins relies on his shiftiness and, you know, his ability to make people miss if he's not at a hundred percent, is that going to be as effective? We don't know. So there's things like that. I mean, and then if Marcus Peters say, isn't ready to go, is Kyle Fuller. Okay. To step in and be a regular starter, because again, I believe he got, you know, kind of beat up last year at Denver and he was kind of a shell of himself. That's not going to be a great thing for him. Um, overall. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see where that is. I agree with your point, though, that being it earlier in the season definitely benefits the Bills for that circumstance. Yeah. And then one last point. You mentioned Tyler Huntley earlier. I think he's one of the better backups in the league, particularly in this system. I just want to point out that in the playoff game against the Ravens, there was a moment where Lamar got sacked. It looked like it could have been a safety. Um, They had just had the Johnson return for a touchdown. So the Bills are up 17 to three. And then the next drive, they snap the ball over Lamar's head. And that's when he leaves with a concussion. And every Bills fan at that point, like you hate to see a superstar like Lamar Jackson leave a game with a concussion. But when they ruled out Lamar Jackson, I mean, you're just sitting there like, you know, (laughs) the best player on the other team's out. We have a 14 point lead like this game is in the bag. And then this guy Huntley comes on the field. Luca, I'm going to raise my hand. I love this league. I follow this league as in depth as I think, you know, anybody that I know. I had no idea who Huntley was. In you fact, didn't know who Tyler Huntley was. I didn't have a clue who he was in that game. And oh. in fact, when I saw that the quarterback's name was Huntley, I thought it was Brett Huntley. I was like, oh, Brett Huntley, the guy, you know, that kind of <laughs> bounced around the league. Um, I think the previous year, maybe he'd actually won a game for your Cardinals on the road week 17 exactly. um, to knock somebody out of the play. I don't know the whole, but it was like, oh, Brett Huntley. I mean, I know him, but he's not going to scare me. And I'm like, wait a minute. Tyler Huntley, funny story. Ravens also have uh, Brett Huntley this year. That's, that's another aside that doesn't matter. And then he came in and it was like, do they have another Lamar? Because I thought there was only one Lamar and now this guy is pretty good too. And you know, he's not Lamar Jackson. Nobody's Lamar Jackson, but he runs the offense efficiently. He's a very good athlete. He's made some plays. I think he's a guy that at some point in his career is going to get a chance to start uh, for somebody or at least compete for a starting job. So they are well insulated there at the quarterback position. So that is a look at the Baltimore Ravens heading into the 2022 season, and they host our Buffalo Bills week number four. Let's move on to the other old reliable organization in the AFC North the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were nine, seven, and one last year. That was good for the seventh seed. They showed up to the playoffs and immediately got bounced by the Kansas City Chiefs in one of the least competitive games you could see in the playoffs. And that was actually two years in a row that they got absolutely smoked by their opponent. The uh, year prior, they got beat by the Browns on their own home field. Um, the Steelers' offense was ranked 20th in or 23rd, excuse me, on offense and 20th on defense. I think that was going to surprise a lot of people. There's this idea that the Steelers have this elite defense. It's kind of one of those things like we always say, when you look under the hood, it doesn't necessarily check out. The biggest story of the Pittsburgh Steelers offseason is legendary quarterback 
Ben Roethlisberger, finally retired, drafted in 2004. What an amazing career. Two Super Bowl wins, three trips to the Super Bowl, and just the best quarterback in Pittsburgh Steelers history. I don't care what anybody says about Terry Bradshaw. That team carried Terry Bradshaw. He was fine, but they had Hall of Famers all around him. The head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers is Mike Tomlin. He has been there for 15 seasons with an obnoxious 241 and 154 win-loss record. Tomlin has one Super Bowl win, and we will just scoot right past the details of that for the benefit of my co-host here. 10 playoff trips in 15 seasons. Just unbelievable consistency when you think about the fact that we all love a team that couldn't make the playoffs one time in a 17-year stretch. 10 playoff trips in 15 years. Just think about that with the NFL and how many injuries there are and how year-to-year this league is in a conference that for the majority of that time had Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and the Ravens were always good and the Bengals were pretty decent with Andy Dalton. That's a lot. One Super Bowl loss along the way, so they've been to the Super Bowl twice with Tomlin. One win, one loss. Um, Their offensive coordinator is Matt Canada. He's going into his second year as coordinator. His first year, to say the least, was not very good. The feeling around Pittsburgh is he was cherry-picked by Ben Roethlisberger to run the offense the, the way that Big Ben wanted it to run. And there are some that are confused why he stuck around post-Ben Roethlisberger. Um, this team is, to me, in serious transition in the draft. They were the only team to select a quarterback in the first round, and they hope they found their replacement for Ben Roethlisberger. Um, They selected Kenny Pickett, 20th overall, the first quarterback off the board, the only quarterback to go in the first two rounds of the draft. The good news for the Steelers, the last time they selected a quarterback in the first round, he ended up being a future Hall of Famer. Um, Luca and I will definitely share our thoughts on Kenny Pickett and why we do question if he's going to have that same path. This offseason, the Steelers did not do a ton. They did sign Miles Jack from the Jacksonville Jaguars, who's going to play next to um, Devin Bush, who hasn't quite lived up to the hype of being a top 10 pick at inside linebacker. Um, They signed Mitch Trubisky from the Bills to uh, maybe be the the starter until Kenny Pickett's ready or compete with Kenny Pickett. But I think when you draft a guy 20th overall, Mitch Trubisky is probably going to do what he's been doing a lot of, stand on the sidelines. Uh, One move I really liked that they made was they signed James Daniels, a four-year starter in Chicago to kind of shore up that offensive line. That offensive line was an absolute disaster for the last two years. Daniels gives them a little bit of stability there, at least at one of the interior spots. And that's where I want to kick off this conversation, Luca, because we can talk about Ben Roethlisberger, we can talk about Kenny Pickett, but to me, the Steelers team that we talk about as being a reliable team that has a way of picking themselves up, they have ignored their offensive line for the better part of the last two years. And in fact, did what a lot of people said they shouldn't have done, which was draft a running back last year in Najee Harris instead of addressing offensive line. And then this year, yeah, they drafted or they signed James Daniel, who is solid, but not any kind of superstar, not any kind of big investment in that team. And again, now you're going to insert a potential rookie quarterback behind a bad offensive line. And I also want to mention they lost Juju Smith-Schuster and James Washington. Um, So that wide receiver room is a little bit depleted, although they did draft George Pickens and Calvin Austin. I don't see this team on the offensive side of the ball really setting up Kenny Pickett for a lot of success if he has to play early. 
Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of people that think, oh, they have Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool and George Pickens and Fire Firemuth and Najee Harris. There's plenty of weapons. Like he just has to be a manager. But I don't think you can manage with an offensive line that is as bad as it's been the last two years. I, I'm not sure that Kenny Pickett's that guy anyway, but I don't think this is as soft as a landing spot for a rookie as some people might believe, Luca. Yeah. They also brought in, just for noteworthy sake, uh, Mason Cole to be their new center. He's not exactly someone that uh, I would trust on the offensive line. I have a little bit of an understanding of him back when he was in Arizona uh, in years past. He was someone that I looked very much forward to jogging off the field. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I go with your point exactly. They haven't really tried to address this offensive line issue going into this year. And that's kind of head scratching when you bring in Mitch Trubisky, you draft Kenny Pickett. As you said, the idea is most likely that Kenny Pickett will eventually become the starter. You want to kind of ease him in. You have now a quarterback you drafted in the first round on a rookie contract. What do teams want to do with that quarterback? They always want to just try to build as much as they can around them and try to utilize that time that he's kind of on a decent wage they haven't done that i don't understand what they're trying to accomplish um deontay johnson's great sure uh chase claypool kind of a little underwhelming to me i'd like to believe in him but a little underwhelming i think you're bigger on george pickens than i am they did draft our guy to calvin austin the third cool flashy a lot of different tools Najee harris is Najee harris uh i guess it's they're a very weird team to me where it's like you feel like they should have addressed kind of like what we're going to get into with another team later on here. They should have been way more aggressive and addressed that offensive line issue to really try to get back going with what they can do. Because in reality, they kind of, got, even though Big Ben did retire and Big Ben is Ben Roethlisberger himself, like they got an improvement at quarterback. It's weird to say that, but I mean, Big Ben was on borrowed time last year. He was, he clearly could barely throw the ball. I mean, that playoff game you referenced, it was it was essentially uh, formality and a goodbye to Big Ben in Arrowhead. It, it it was the weirdest playoff game to ever watch. I didn't, I barely like I barely even watched it. I just had it on a side screen as I gamed. I'm pretty sure because it was the Sunday night playoff game, and I everyone knew what was going to happen. I think didn't TJ Watt take one back for a touchdown and it's like, Oh, something might happen. It's like, no, 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 stop. Like this is no, this is going to be a blowout in no time. Um, so when you even get an improvement at quarterback play and eventually, hopefully it's Kenny Pickett for Steeler fans sake, I guess I honestly believe Mitch Trubisky might be better suited to run the offense for a good chunk of the year, as long as he doesn't mess it up. So that's what you got. But no matter who you have under center, this offensive line is not going to be able to do them any favors. And unfortunately, they're going to take probably a pretty noticeable step back in what they're at. Um, As you also mentioned, their defense. uh, I mean, TJ Watt, yes. Cameron Hayward, a reliable guy interior wise. They brought in Larry Ogunjobi to replace the retired Stefan Tuitt. I get it like that. I think Ogajobi though is coming off an injury where maybe he's not even ready week one, but okay, cool. But as you mentioned, Devin Bush kind of, I mean, he's good, but he's kind of been disappointed at the same time. Miles Jack got cut by Jacksonville questionable. Um, I think that might be a nice sneaky little plug there for them, 
But beyond that, linebackers are meh. They bring in Levi Wallace to be starter on the outside. We understand exactly what Levi Wallace is out over here. Um, nothing special. Uh, Mika Fitzpatrick, very good as a safety. But, I mean, Terrell Edmonds is okay at strong safe, and that's pretty much it there. I, they're kind of just an average defense to me that can be very good as long as TJ Watts blowing up the game for them. Like, that's kind of what it is. It's like, you know, hey, TJ, please save us. Like, and they, I mean, the Steelers are the greatest week one team in NFL history. I feel like, like we saw it last year against the bills. I feel like everyone went in with pretty good confidence. And then TJ Watt just absolutely manhandled the entire game and won it for the Steelers. Essentially. Um, they seem to do this every year. I wouldn't be surprised if they do it again this year versus whoever they're playing, but overall, yeah, between the offensive line point, which is a great point you brought up that they have not addressed, and it, I, it just, it almost feels like a half throwaway year, even though you would never do that. I would imagine. Um, between that and then just the defense is the defense; they didn't really make any changes. It is what it is, and then there's just no, I don't know, like it's just a bunch of names on paper to me, and it's just going to be an average at best team. Yeah, I just it kind of feels like a throwaway year to me to the Steelers. Like it just doesn't seem like anything that they can really get behind. If you're a Steelers fan, like there's, there's just nothing there. Like you, you're going to be looking at Kenny Pickett. Can he do something? But also any knowledgeable Steelers fan or any knowledgeable football fan will sit there and watch it and be like, well, you can only take it with a grain of salt because this offensive line can't block a nosebleed. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is horrible. Najee Harris is just running into a defensive line every snap. And then Kenny Pickett takes the snap or, you know, he's in shotgun and he's got one and a half seconds to make a decision and get the ball out of his hands. It's just it's going to be a tough year, I feel like. And uh, I thought all the points you brought up were spot on. I'm worried about Najee Harris. He reminds me of a guy that um, used to be in the league back in the mid 2000s, Steven Jackson, who got drafted by the Rams right after oh. they stopped being good. And they ended up being one of the worst teams in the league. And they used to give them the ball 400 times a year, running him into a brick wall. And I think absolutely derailed what could have been a Hall of Fame career had he gotten drafted by a much more stable organization. Najee Harris, his rookie year, 381 touches, 1,200 rushing yards, 467 receiving yards. If you're a fantasy football player, you love Najee Harris. The problem is the reality of the situation is 3.9 yards per carry. And they gave him the ball high volume on an offense that's overly reliant on him. And if you're talking about injecting a rookie quarterback into it, I think that's only going to rely on him even more. Are we looking at a guy who two to three years into the league is already entering the back nine of his career because of the amount of tread on his tires? And I agree with you. I think the biggest debate is going to be, do you want to play the shiny new toy and can he pick it? Or do you want to see Mitch Trubisky? If I were a Steelers fan, I definitely can see the argument for, hey, we drafted this guy 20th overall. We have a pretty good idea of what Mitch Trubisky is. Let's get busy living with Kenny Pickett. Let's see what he has. I mean, shoot, we saw Josh Allen play with maybe the worst 10 players around him his rookie year, and he somehow made it work because he's a freakish athlete, made it work to an extent. The offense was not great by any means, neither was he, but he pulled a lot of things out of his butt. I don't think Kenny Pickett can do that. Um, but on the defensive side of the ball, you brought up a great point. I think when you look at it and you're like, Mike Tomlin, one of the best coaches in the league, he specializes in defense. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they historically have great defenses. The Steel Curtain, you know, they had Joey Porter, 
They had um, James Harrison. They had Troy Polamalu. Like you just always think of the Steelers as like a defensive team. And then you look at the names and you're like TJ Watt and Cameron Hayward and Minka Fitzpatrick, high end talent. But then you go beyond that. And that's where they kind of lose me. Like I don't think they have a lot of a lot of guys in the secondary who can cover. I like Levi Wallace. He's not a weakness on any team, but he's certainly not a strength, and he's not somebody you're going to trust on an island if you're asking him to do that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Terrell Edmonds, Tremaine Edmonds' brother. Very cool that two brothers went in the same first round of a draft. He has been a disappointment in Pittsburgh. He signed a minimum contract essentially to come back on a one-year deal, and it's almost like they didn't have any better ideas. They got Carl Joseph, a former first round pick out of the Raiders. Um, we mentioned uh, Miles Jack. Devin Bush has not been a good player. So to me, this defense, despite having the big names, the Steeler uniforms, the Steeler mystique, the idea that they're going to just carry this team, I don't see the horses to do it. And week one, they start off with the Cincinnati Bengals. So good luck to them. It's, it's the week one Steelers. So maybe to Lucas point, they'll come out and they'll shock the world and they'll beat the Bengals in Cincinnati and the Bengals will experience what the Bills fans experienced last year. But I think this team's going to have a tough, tough time getting back to the playoffs, particularly in a transition year at the quarterback position. One last question on the Steelers, Luca. What are your thoughts on Mike Tomlin? I think there's a lot of people that think, oh, he inherited a great situation, a great defense, a great quarterback. He got a Super Bowl, and you know his wins are carried by a great quarterback. I think he's a very good coach, if not a great coach. I think he's right up there with... Not necessarily Bill Belichick. I think he's in a league of his own. But to me, I'd put Mike Tomlin in that next tier with guys like a Sean Payton, who's not in the league right now, Andy Reid, guys like that. Where do you fall on Mike Tomlin? Um, just real quick, we don't ever have to bring James Harrison ever back up again. We just, sorry, we don't second, have to bring that second in. reference to a game that you do not want to hear about. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that. But Mike Tomlin is absolutely deserving of all the accolades he could possibly get. I love Mike Tomlin. Um, unfortunately, he stole a game from me that I really didn't want him to. But overall, I mean, he when, when I look at like Mike Tomlin, it's constant success. He always seems to, he brings the Steelers the pedigree that they deserve to be when it comes to that constant success. And then somehow on top of it all, Mike Tomlin had this ability where he had a locker room with Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell at the top of their game, somehow looking like elite players in this league with no problems. I don't remember anyone talking about Antonio Brown or Le'Veon Bell being a locker room problem ever when they were with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that really comes down to Mike Tomlin. That is his job. He, a head coach needs to man manage every one of those personalities and people in the locker room and make sure shit stays in house and it doesn't get out to the public. And clearly, as we have learned now, Mike Tomlin might be the greatest coach at that exact skill. And that alone for the skill that he needed for those two players clearly tells you that when you then bring in a guy like George Pickens, who has some red flags of his own, things like that, it kind of reminds me of like a Bruce Arians where there's just certain coaches out there that really understand troubled individuals or people that have red flags and know how to tame them and turn them into proper athletes, proper gentlemen, proper individuals in this world that they won't accentuate that problem. They won't become more of an issue for the team and hopefully guide them to success. And I think Mike Tomlin has done a phenomenal job of that over all these years. 
and he knows exactly what he's doing on top of everything it goes with X's and O's and his defensive knowledge and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't have a now 16 season career as a head coach for one team because you're not that great of a coach. That's a ridiculous sentiment that I feel like if anyone has that feeling, you're just grasping at straws. That's I don't understand how you could knock Mike Tomlin. And and everything about Mike Tomlin is perfect. It's genuine. It's it's upfront. It's hard on his sleeve. It's it's real. And I feel like I I don't know what you would have on Mike Tomlin to really hate on him. I I just it wouldn't make sense to me. So my view on Mike Tomlin is that yes, where you just put him, of course, Belichick is in a world of his own, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he's he's awesome. After that, yes, Mike Tomlin deserves to be right in that tier two. He deserves to be right there with everyone else when it comes to the guys who Mike, you do not fire Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin leaves. That is the kind of credibility and respect he deserves in this league. Oh, if you fire Mike Tomlin, he he'd be out of a job for five minutes. Um, he's the ultimate people leader in a sport where I think the position of head coach, the number one skill needed is being a people leader, even more so than X's and O's, which he's obviously very good at, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And you mentioned like he has had some head cases and what I like about the way he handles it is he is consistent. Like he's not going to be the, I'm going to coddle. Like he's not going to take the Rex Ryan approach where I'm going to try to be buddy, buddy with my, my troubled players. And I'm going to be the cool guy that they can relate to. And I'm always going to tell them that, Hey, you're doing fine, buddy. It's okay. No, he took a, he drew a hard line in the sand with Martavis Bryant. He drew a hard line in the sand with Chase Claypool. He sent Antonio Brown home because he was late to the game and acting like a baby before a week 17 game where the Steelers had to win to have a shot to make, make it to the playoffs. Another thing about Mike Tomlin, Never had a losing season as a head coach, and that includes a season where he had Duck Hodges as his quarterback for the majority of the year. Just the ultimate consistent guy. And to me, when you look at this team and transition at quarterback, um, questions on defense, questions up and down the roster, in my opinion, the reason why I hesitate to say they're going to be bad is Mike Tomlin. I have never seen in my life a Mike Tomlin team be bad. I've seen him be average. I've never seen him be bad. And I I'm just not going to sit here and predict it to be bad. I think even if the Steelers have a down year, it'll be an eight or nine win year where they steal wins along the way from teams that they go into the game six, seven point underdogs. And every time you play the Steelers, it's going to be a tough game that I could include when they play the bills. So I think the Steelers are kind of in for it. I think it's going to be a couple years where they, they reset restock, but to me, this is not a situation where Steelers fans need to just hold their head in their hands and say, man, it's going to be a decade of misery. No, Mike Tomlin is way too stable for that. If they believe in him, they believe in the process. And if they see enough from Kenny Pickett early on to be like, okay, maybe he's not the guy. I think this is the kind of organization that would move on quick enough to move on to the next guy and not try to force it down your throat to justify that pick. So we talked about a very stable organization, Luca, in the Steelers, a very stable organization in the Ravens. Let's look on the direct opposite side of the coin and talk about the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns were eight and nine last year. Their offense was 18th. Their defense was fifth. And honestly, Luca, I feel like I'm wasting my time talking about anything from last year because of what this offseason has brought, but I'm not going to shortchange people that might want to know the information on the team. 
Their head coach is Kevin Stefanski. He's been there for two years with a record of 19 and 14. Um, he was not in the building when this happened, but on his watch, he got credit for it. He was actually sick with COVID. The Browns won their first playoff game since, uh, when was their last playoff? I have it right here. They won their first playoff win since returning to Cleveland in 1999. I believe their last playoff win prior to that was under Bill Belichick against the New England Patriots when Belichick was the head coach. So the first time the Browns won a playoff game since returning in 1999, um, which is, you know, either good or bad when you want to talk about organizational stability. Their offensive coordinator is an old friend of ours, Alex Van Pelt, and their defensive coordinator is Joe Woods. He's in his third year as defensive coordinator. A bit of a surprise they brought him back considering after they got blasted by the Patriots last year, Miles Garrett came out and told the media, I don't know why we didn't adjust on defense, but Enough about all that, Luca. Let's get into why we're here with the Cleveland Browns. We're going to talk about some of the moves they've made, but the biggest thing they did this offseason was they pulled the plug on Baker Mayfield, the quarterback they drafted first overall in 2018, ahead of guys like Josh Allen, ahead of guys like Lamar Jackson, waiting for Baker Mayfield in 2018 while passing on guys like Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. And they moved on from Baker Mayfield and sent a bounty of picks to the Cleveland or to the Houston Texans for Deshaun Watson, who, if you're evaluating Deshaun Watson as a football player, he's an excellent football player at times. He's been up and down here recently, although recently he hasn't even really been on the field because he was out all of last year and currently could be facing a year-long suspension. We don't know what's going to happen. That's still up in the air at the time we're recording this because, Luca, we don't want to get too much into the legal side of this, but we have to talk about at least why he is potentially suspended. There are 24 women who have sued Deshaun Watson over potential sexual assault in the form of massage therapists who treated him and said that those appointments went wrong. The details are all over the internet, nothing that we are going to cover on this podcast, but that is the backdrop of why we are going to now drill down in the decision of the Browns to trade for Deshaun Watson. Uh, before we get much more into that, let, we do need to bring up that they traded for Amari Cooper from the Dallas Cowboys. Um, they did get rid of Jarvis Landry and um, Odell Beckham obviously was cut in the middle of last year, went on to win a Super Bowl with the LA Rams. After Amari Cooper, they don't have much behind him. They have Anthony Schwartz, who they spent a third-round pick on the year before. Donovan Peoples-Jones. Uh, they drafted Bell in the third round of the draft. But if it's it's Cooper or bust for them. And then this offseason, they made David Njoku one of the highest-paid tight ends in the entire league. Four-year, $57 million contract extension for a guy who has one season in his five-year career of more than 50 catches and one season in his five-year career of more than 500 receiving yards. David, David Njoku now being paid like an elite tight end. So huge backdrop there, a lot of questionable decisions by the Browns. But Luca, we have to start the conversation off with Baker out, Deshaun in. What are your high-level thoughts? This is a dumpster fire of an organization. So why wouldn't they just absolutely give up on Baker Mayfield to then pay a boatload of picks and then a boatload of cash for Deshaun Watson. Why not? 
And then as you brought up, just a cherry on top, just way overpay a tight end because they just felt like they needed to franchise him to eventually work out a deal. Yada, yada, yada. It's the Cleveland Browns are just, they have put themselves into a position here going into the 2022 season where I am. This is the only team I am actively rooting against with a passion and hoping everything absolutely blows up in their face. It's just, it's embarrassing. It's cringeworthy just to see how poorly this organization is run. As you brought up leading into this, this is quite literally a polar opposite to the Steelers. And it's beautiful poetry that it was not even two years ago when this exact organization blew out the Steelers in Pittsburgh in the playoffs and really finally made people think, wait a second, this is finally going somewhere. The Browns are actually doing something and it didn't even take them two years to seemingly mess it all up when it comes to at least just creating chaos. And I honestly, as much as I don't know with the Steelers, because as you brought up, Mike Tomlin is a, I would never bet against my there. You don't make money betting against Tom Brady just like you don't make money betting against Mike Tomlin. I have no idea what to expect with the Browns just because they have completely blown shit up in no sensical way possible and are just putting all their hope into Deshaun Watson amid insane legal issues and insane problems that, again, we're not going to dive into that too, too much. We have to acknowledge it because it's the reality of we don't know what it's going to entail when it comes to everything that is of the Cleveland Browns. But holy crap, they committed to so much while in the middle of that. And they have in the unknown of, is it going to be a season long? Now it sounds like it might not be. It could be eight games. Who knows what's going on? But it doesn't matter. You've already committed $230 million to this guy. By the way, you know who's the person that loved that the most? Lamar Jackson. Because in his own division, a team paid someone $230 million guaranteed with all of that going on. And that person hasn't stepped on a football field in over a year. And Lamar's like, yeah, there's my number starting point. So anyways, bringing it back in here, the Cleveland Browns are seemingly in a place of purgatory in the sense of they could legitimately just be a dumpster fire that finds themselves on a crazy tailspin to just awfulness. Because as you mentioned, they traded for Amari Cooper, and then it's not much outside that. David Njoku, even though he's getting paid like he's an elite tight end, has not shown he can really be anything like that. They do still have Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. That's clearly who this team runs around and this offense runs around specifically. But their health is kind of questionable. I believe they both got hurt at least somewhat significantly last year. I think Kareem a little bit more than Chubb, but they both did sustain significant injuries. And then again, their defense on paper looks really good, but what's going on when it comes to the defense coordinator who's, you know, calling the shots and things like that, like they should be good. And yet they somehow really underachieved last year. And even their superstar, that is Miles Garrett, had no idea what was going on. I just don't understand how a team in a league such as the NFL as big as it is, can be run as poorly as it is with zero oversight, it seems like, and just find themselves 
I, finds them. They should be a good team. And, and they drafted Baker Mayfield in 2018, as you brought up, as their number one in face of the franchise. And now he's going to be playing them against them week one for the Panthers, while also I think he's still partially on the Browns payroll. So to all those points, that just is beautiful for where the Cleveland Browns sit. They are probably going to lose that game week one to a quarterback that they are paying to kick their ass. And it's just like you put yourself here. You, you know, it's like growing up when your father, you know, saw you just keep fucking up and just keep ruining things. And it's like you dug this hole. Now get yourself out of it. This hole for the Cleveland Browns could be absolutely cataclysmic. I have no idea how they're supposed to dig themselves out of this. If the Deshaun Watson situation really goes south and things just keep just it looks like it's kind of coming to an end. But if it keeps going and just becomes an absolute shit show, even more so. I have no idea how they get out of this. And it doesn't even matter who they put on the field because the noise is just going to be overwhelming to this team and organization to the point. I don't know how you win games with the amount of chaos going on around them. I just, how does anyone stay focused? How does anyone want to be there? How does anything successful happen with that amount of shit show going on? It just, the Cleveland Browns are a shit show. They're a dumpster fire and they put themselves there. This is their fault. It's not like all of a sudden this just happened. They did it to themselves and they did it to themselves very, very quickly. It's, it's intrigued. It's a burn. It's a building up in flames and you're intrigued to watch it. You just want to see what the hell happens. It's one of the teams that I am very much looking forward to seeing what the hell happens with because it could be just awful. It could work. I, I guess. I mean, anything could work. But I am very, very, very intrigued to see how this season breaks down for them. And I'm also intrigued to hear what you have to say about the Cleveland Browns, because I know you have a personal vendetta against the Browns due to personal things and everything else in between. So, um, yeah, overall, they're a dumpster fire. They've handled everything as badly as you could. And trading away Baker Mayfield for scraps and still paying him while then paying Deshaun Watson an insane amount of money who hasn't touched a football field in over a year. Just wild stuff to me. Well, let me start off with a compliment. I like Amari Cooper. I think um, when he's healthy, he's one of the best route running wide receivers in the league. And I think he's a very good addition for them. I think that was a good move for them. And when you look at how the wide receiver market played out, if Dallas had just held Amari Cooper until after the draft, they probably could have gotten more than a fifth round pick for him. That's about where the compliments end for me. Um, you know, I don't want to turn this into a meme where I just make fun of the Browns and, you know, because there's, you know, I had a bad experience when I went to a Browns game in Cleveland one time. No, uh, you know, this is a really serious issue that for one, are we sure Baker Mayfield's bad? Like I know Baker Mayfield had some ups and downs, but in 2018, he was excellent. Looked like the next star in the league. 2019, he struggled a little bit. Again, you have to factor in though, there were coaching changes. This, this wasn't Josh Allen with Brian Dable three years in a row. So 2020, first year under Stefanski, Baker Mayfield had a 95.9 quarterback rating, 26 touchdowns, eight interceptions, and led them to that big win in Pittsburgh. Yes, last year his numbers dipped, okay? He had a bad year, 17 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, 83.1 quarterback rating. But we also know he was playing hurt most of the year and probably shouldn't have been playing hurt because... He didn't get any of the benefit of the doubt as a guy who was out there trying to play for his team. Instead, it was, oh, well, if you're out there, you should be playing better. And I, 
to me, everything I, I liked about Baker Mayfield was he was a guy who, if he could breathe, he was going to be on the field for his team. And that ended up costing him a lot of money last year. Look, I think we're past the point of wondering if Baker Mayfield's ever going to be the best quarterback from the 2018 class, right? Like Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson have lapped him over and over again. I'm not convinced Baker Mayfield can't still be good though. And to me, it felt like they gave up on him just a little bit too early. They started putting out rumors in the media through Chris Mortensen that they were looking for an adult in the room, which let's all take a moment to laugh about the fact that the Browns wanted an adult in the room. And then they go out and trade not one, not two, but three first round draft picks and guarantee fully $230 million to a guy who is being sued by 24 different women. You want an adult in the room and yet you send all of your assets financially and draft pick wise for that guy. Like, I don't want to laugh at the Browns. I feel angry for Browns fans because you put the Browns fans in a position where they want to root for their team. Like you, this is what you do. We are football fans. We want to root for our team. I sat there and rooted for EJ Manuel, who wasn't very good. I sat there and rooted for JP Lossman, who wasn't very good because damn it, I'm a Bills fan. I want them to be good. You're a fan. You're going to root for your team. You've put Browns fans in a position where they have to root for a guy who's probably a scumbag. And if Deshaun Watson is either suspended for multiple years or is not good anymore or gets into more legal issues because he's a bad person, the Browns can't get out of this contract. They are locked in for the next three years unless they just want to absolutely tank their entire salary cap. And guess what, Browns fans? You want more bad news? If Deshaun Watson doesn't work out, the next two years worth of drafts, you don't have a first round pick because you sent them all to Houston for this guy. I don't understand it. This is why bad teams stay bad. They panic. Did Ben Roethlisberger retired? Why didn't the Steelers get aggressive on Deshaun Watson? That's weird. Seems like the Steelers were a team that could have used a quarterback. You didn't even hear their name mentioned with Deshaun Watson. That's kind of strange. A, a team that has a history of winning, six Super Bowls, um, stability at head coach, stability in the front office, not even mentioned with Deshaun Watson. They just went out and drafted a guy. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, we have picks, we have salary cap, we can figure it out. This is a prime example of a team that has won one playoff game since the mid-90s, panicking and just constantly trying to find the next best get-rich-quick scheme. This is the friend who, every time you see him, they have a new idea of how they're going to turn their life into a great success, and you wish them the best, but then you just you just kind of sit there silently thinking, this isn't going to work out for you. I don't really want to watch you fail, but I'm prepared to do so because I just know your track record. And the scariest part of this, Luca, when you look up and down this Browns roster, there is a lot of talent on this roster. Miles Garrett, one of the best defensive players in the entire league. Nick Chubb, to me, is one of the best running backs in this entire league. I already said how much I like Amari Cooper. Their offensive line is absolutely loaded with former Bills legend Wyatt Teller on the offensive line. Jadavion Clowney comes back. He's not the player we thought he was going to be when he was drafted first overall by the Texans, but he's still a very solid defensive end to uh, bookend with Miles Garrett. Uh, Jeremiah Wusu Koromoro is, I think, a second-year player that's really going to blossom now that he's over the injuries from last year. Denzel Ward is one of the better cornerbacks in the entire league, according to executives who rank those kind of things. So there's talent up and down this roster. 
And this is a team that if they had stability and people making good decisions could probably win consistently. But unfortunately, they don't. And that's why you wind up sending three first round picks and $230 million guaranteed for a guy who has 24 different lawsuits against him for sexual misconduct. That's about where my analysis on the Browns ends. They have players I really like. They, they have players that I think are excellent. And I don't think it's going to amount to anything because I think their quarterback's going to miss half of, if not the entire season, which means Jacoby Brissett's going to be playing important snaps for them. No disrespect to Jacoby Brissett, but that's probably not a good thing. And I think it's going to be another year where the Browns disappoint. And that's about all I have on the Browns at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's sad to see an NFL team get to this point. It's, they are, if you take away the Browns and you take away the, the laughing stock that is the name of which they are associated with, and you just look at this team and you look at the talent, everything you just brought up is great. And even people like Grant Delpit, who I believe, I mean, in college when he was at LSU, I loved Grant Delpit. I think he's going to be a great player in the league. He hasn't quite yet gotten there, but he's still very, very young. You have Greedy Williams also out of LSU. He should be a very good player as well. Hopefully it hasn't quite happened, but he's not bad either. And yet this bad organization, as you brought up, just put itself in an incredibly tough situation by just throwing everything at Deshaun Watson and committing everything to Deshaun Watson amid one of the worst legal issues and one of the craziest and unfortunate allegations. I feel like at least in my lifetime that I can remember an NFL player going through other than the uh, Aaron Hernandez situation. Obviously that is just a whole thing in itself. Um, it's just insane to me that the organization actively put itself into this predicament, because if you really think about it, if everything in an ideal world, and this is what I'm going to, I'm going to kind of wrap it here with the Browns in an ideal world, ideal Deshaun Watson situation. And I'm not, again, this is nothing about the legal issues. This is nothing about that. We're going to talk football right now. Ideal world. Everything with Deshaun Watson is what it is. This season is going to be tough to really salvage if he's suspended for half a season. If it's the full season, it's going to be borderline impossible to salvage because as you brought up, Jacoby Brissett is not exactly the guy you're going to lean on and really hope just brings you to the promised land. Um, But if it's a half a season, it's still going to be a struggle. So next year becomes the year that you really are banking on that success. Well, as another year goes, the unknown of is this team still going to be able to be together? Where is everyone going to be at in their careers? Hopefully no one gets, you know, crazy career ending injured, things like that effect. And as every year passes, you're further and further away or you're closing that window. The only problem is you don't have any of those assets or those valuable assets, those blue chip assets to reload and hopefully keep the train a rolling. It's all there with Deshaun Watson. And as time progresses, Deshaun Watson, as great as he maybe is thought to be by the Browns, he's going to deteriorate, whether it's slowly or fast over time. And that window again will progressively keep closing on them. And it's like, it's just shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, it's all self-sustained. You did it to yourself. You dug this hole. Now get yourself out of it. It's just you've dug yourself such an insane hole that you're 
you're gam. I mean, this is gambling. This isn't like, this isn't, you know, investing. This isn't, you know, proper management. This is a straight up gamble. This is putting it all on a number at the roulette table and hoping to God it hits. And that's just, that's, you can't do that in the NFL. You, you shouldn't do that. That's irresponsible. It's just reckless. It's dumb. And it just blows my mind that an NFL team has put themselves there and has really thought that this is the way they can do it. Your analogy and bringing it back to that was spot on. This is the get rich quick. This is the friend that really thinks this is the way to do it. And yet they have never shown the track record that that is ever the way to succeed at this. So why the hell should any of us believe that this is actually the way to do it? None of us should. I can't believe the Haslam signed off on it. If you want to tell me that a general manager going into his third year off of a losing record in the year before rolls the dice, sends a bunch of future assets and money for a player that he thinks could maybe get him over the hump. I could get that because, Hey, if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be here to deal with the pain. Anyway, you want to tell me that a head coach who, um, going into his third year had a losing record last year, signed off on it. Cool. Ownership. You're not going anywhere. You're going to be here to withstand the pain if and when this Deshaun Watson thing doesn't work out for Browns fans. Look, they are just the innocent bystanders here that have no control over what their team does. I don't fault them for rooting for Deshaun Watson or anybody on their team for that matter, because it's what you do. It's you're a football fan. I understand the position that you're put in. And for you, for your sake, Browns fans, if you're listening, I do hope it works out. I'm definitely, definitely not optimistic. All right, Luca, enough about the Browns. Let's talk about the team that was in the Super Bowl last year. And it feels like a lot of people forget that they were in the Super Bowl. The Cincinnati Bengals were in the Super Bowl last year. They did lose to the Rams. They were 10 and 7 and won the AFC North. 13th overall ranked offense, 18th ranked defense. Their head coach, Zach Taylor, has been there for three years. He has a very unimpressive record of 16, 32, and 1. I think that record's going to go up here in the next few years. There were some wink, wink, nudge, nudge tanking for Joe Burrow going on there. Um, The first playoff win last year, this was big. This was big for the Bengals, big for their fans. When they beat the Raiders on wildcard weekend at home, and it was a close game. Derek Carr was down there in the red zone at the end of that game, firing passes at the end zone. The Bengals won their first playoff game in over 30 years. And it was just a weight off the shoulders of the organization, the fans. And I think you saw it through the rest of that playoff run. This was a team that was playing loose. They didn't care about being the underdogs in Tennessee. They didn't care about being the underdogs in Kansas City. And it almost felt like they were going to go in there and steal the Super Bowl. And this team is led by quarterback Joe Burrow, who was the number one overall draft pick in 2020, the same year that Tua and Justin Herbert were taken. And to me, the catapult of this offense was a decision the Bengals made last year that I will raise my hand and say at the time I thought was a very bad decision and a short-sighted decision. They took Jamar Chase, a wide receiver, over what was considered to be one of the better left tackle prospects in a long time, Panay Sewell, and Jamar Chase was a smashing success already in the conversation for one of the best wide receivers in the entire league. Uh, the Bengals to me, Luca, um, you know, we all know that they had their faults on the offensive line and they went out this off season and really addressed that. 
they made a big investment in Lyle Collins. Now, look, there, there's some risk there. Um, and if you're a Bengals fan, you might actually compare this to Cordy Glenn, where a player that when he's on the field plays really well. But Cordy Glenn's a player that the Bengals traded for, couldn't stay healthy, and never really paid off as far as the investment the Bengals made in their trade with Buffalo that ended up getting the Bills' Josh Allen. Lyle Collins has missed 21 of the last 33 games the last two years due to either injuries or suspension, but if he's on the field, he's going to be a significant upgrade. What I like about what the Bengals did, though, was instead of doing what the Jacksonville Jaguars did, which was go out and blow up the guard market for Brandon Scherf, the the Bengals were like, look, we have holes all over this offensive line. So what we're going to do is instead of going at the very high end of the pool, we're going to get a couple of solid guys. We're going to get Alex Kappa, who had um, a 44th in the league in pass block win rate in 2021. Prior to that, no Bengal had higher than 57. Not great, but certainly solid. Ted Karras, three-year, $18 million deal. Now, he's a solid interior player, started for the Patriots last year at both right and left guard. He's a guy that can play right, left, and inside. And all this comes back to me where they replaced 60% of their offensive line. My read on the Bengals, Luca, and I don't want this to come off as any kind of an insult because I mean this as a compliment. Last year, despite making it to the Super Bowl, I felt like they were a year ahead of schedule. To me, they didn't have what I would consider a championship team. Like you had an offensive line that couldn't block anybody. They could not block the Titans at all in round two. If Ryan Tannehill could have made one play, one play, the Titans win that game, but he just couldn't. And then they went on to beat the Chiefs and, you know, came close within an eyelash of beating the Rams. But this this is a team that to me, they have an okay defense. Um, you had Jamar Chase as a rookie. You had Joe Burrow coming off of a devastating injury. I thought to me this was a team that, hey, we're going to go out in 2021, maybe win eight or nine games, show some things on offense. Maybe Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase get some of that some of that um, groove back they had from LSU and come 2022, we're ready to take off. But no, they were ahead of schedule. I don't think they were as good as making it to the Super Bowl would suggest, but I love what they've done this offseason and they have built a true offensive line. And now instead of Quentin Spain going out there and not blocking anybody and then tweeting passive aggressive, people are counting me out now. And every time somebody shows him not blocking somebody for a game ending play, they have real offensive linemen out there, reliable ones like Alex Kappa and Ted Karras and hopefully Lyle Collins. And they have a team around Joe Burrow. You don't need the best offensive line in the league. The Bengals just need a solid offensive line. I think they've built that. And one thing that is hanging over this team's head right now before I kick it to you is Jesse Bates. Their outstanding safety is franchise tagged. The deadline to extend him to a long-term deal has gone past, so they can't do that anymore. And his team has said that they will not play on the franchise tag. So that is a bit of a stalemate, and that would really be a huge blow to this team that obviously has Super Bowl aspirations. So all of that as a backdrop, we're really happy with what this team has done. I am anyway. I don't want to speak for you. What is your high-level view of the Bengals? Yeah, I think under the radar uh, with the Bengals and everything like that, I think um, the offensive line, and it's the one thing that everyone took away from last year. It's like, wow, this team made the Super Bowl, but holy shit, their offensive line really stunk. It just couldn't block anything. As you love to say, couldn't block a nosebleed. Um I love that they immediately went out there and 
smartly addressed that. Uh, very, very uh, strategically went out, as you put it, didn't necessarily break the bank, but made sure they tried to heavily address it and improve what was there. And I think they did a good job as well. Um, they also, interestingly enough, drafted Dax Hill and Cam Taylor Britt. I, I look at them as notable draft picks and things like that. I say interestingly, just because I don't know if that's necessarily where they should have gone. Like you would think offensive line just to even more address the point would have probably been smarter because they had people like a reliable Mike Hilton or, you know, Eli Apple and a there that are those really the necessary needs there at the time. Maybe the depth is going to be good and Dax Hill will probably step in for Mike Hilton as that kind of like, you know, nickelback eventually. I think that's kind of where they have him felt. I think that's where others also feel he will be impactful with this team uh, the soonest. But um, overall, I think they did a good job. I do think you are spot on, though, with ahead of schedule. I think last season was a surprise. Um, They kind of benefited from the fact that the Steelers were playing with a dead arm Big Ben. The Browns, unfortunately, just couldn't do things with a hurt uh, Baker Mayfield. Um, and then, I mean, the Ravens were depleted as we talked about earlier and it just kind of fell as it was, but then also, I mean, that Joe Burrow to Jamar chase. And let me just say this T Higgins, Jamar chase, Tyler Boyd, that is a hell of a trident when it comes to wide receivers. It could be looked at as one of the best wide receiver cores, starting wide receiver groups in the NFL. I, I think I've even heard it out there where some think that that is the best when it comes to one, two, and three combined. Yeah, at the top of my head, I'm having a tar- hard time thinking of somebody better. It, it's Yeah, it's it's a very, very, very good starting three. And when you have someone as talented as Joe Burrow and he stays healthy, Jamar Chase obviously is just the dynamic, incredible talent out wide that opens up everything else for the other two. Tyler Boyd, very reliable in his hands. We all love Tyler Boyd out here. Bill's and legend. <laughs> Bill's legend, that's right. And then T. Higgins... I just feel like he gets he's kind of a forgotten man. It's he's also a very very talented player. So they can just make things happen. It just happened ahead of schedule last year. It, it, I don't see how they could do any worse. I think the problem the Bengals run into this season. Now they did lose a guy like CJ Uzuma. Let me just state they then try to replace it with Hayden Hurst. Interestingly, interestingly enough, um, but. I think the thing they fall into and where they might kind of, we'll call it quote unquote, falling off is just the fact that the Ravens, you would assume, are not going to be depleted and they're definitely not going to take them lightly this season. Like you will not see the Bengals blowing out the Ravens, I don't think. I just don't see how that world replicates itself from last year. I think the Bengals won both of those games and they put up over 40 points each of those. And Joey. Joey Burrow then had the balls, which I mean, I love this about him. I'm sure a lot of others out there love this about them, about him, I should say. Um, He had the balls to go on a podcast this offseason and talk about how he loves playing defenses that talk like that. And he specifically pointed out the Ravens and he talked about how much he put up on them. And, you know, key members of the Ravens defense even tweeted, retweeted that video, tweeted out at it, just saying, you know, duly noted things of that effect. You don't do that to great 
teams such as the Ravens. You, you just don't give them bulletin board material. You don't piss them off, especially when they're in your division. It's just not a good idea. Just I, I don't know why you would want to do that. I mean, it's hey, that's Joe Burrow's like, would you expect him to do anything else? No, Th- that is who he is clearly. And I love that about him. It's the swag. It's the it's the belief, the confidence, everything about it. What's not the love about Joe Burrow, but probably choose your battles a little differently, maybe because the Ravens to me are going to be the biggest problem when it comes to the Bengals trying to replicate everything they did last year. Because I, again, I don't see the Ravens going through an insane injury problem like they did last year. I mean, if they do, that's just crazy and it's an issue in itself. So the Ravens are going to be this, the downfall of the Bengals, I think. And that's unfortunate. It's not the fact that the Bengals got worse. It's just a lot of teams around them. And on top of it, let's just also point this out. The Bengals were playing much or at least a couple more easier matchups on their schedule. Now they're going to have a schedule chock full of division winners. They're going to have a just less cupcake games. We'll call them less more winnable games. They are going to go through a much tougher week by week schedule throughout the entire season. And you're probably going to see a couple of those coin toss wins turn into coin toss losses. And unfortunately for them, that may mean they're not going to, you know, go back to back division champs and they're going to find it a little bit tougher as they try to get back to the Super Bowl. And I, it's, it's not a bad thing, but at the same time, Obviously, you want to try to replicate your stuff. They're probably going to be a playoff team. I would be surprised, to be honest, if they're not. But their road going back to the Super Bowl is going to be much more difficult, unfortunately, for them. And that's just more of a case of everyone getting better around them than them getting worse. They have improved the things they needed to. It's just, unfortunately, teams such as the Ravens are probably going to be much healthier. The Bills are even deeper now and have more legitimate threats. Uh, the Chargers have gotten much, much better. I mean, the AFC as a conference around them has gotten significantly better that week in, week out, it's just going to be tougher challenges for them as they try to go back to the Super Bowl. And that's where their quote unquote step back may occur. They have an interesting schedule too. When you look at it, the first half, it's not overly daunting. They do have that week one game against the Steelers and Cincinnati. Luca has mentioned how good the Steelers are, at least to open the season. They go week to one Super Bowl champs. That's what they week do. Week one Super Bowl champs. But Steelers against the Cardinals week one would be just a sight to see. Um, Bengals at Cowboys week two. Again, tough game. I could see them losing that. But then it's Jets, Dolphins. Then they play the Ravens, which is going to be big. And then it's at the Saints. And it's home to the Falcons, like to me, and then it's the Browns and the Panthers. And to me, that's kind of like, okay, there's probably four or five wins in there pretty easily if you just, you know, you stay healthy. But then when you look at the back half of this schedule, they play the Browns twice when you would expect if Deshaun Watson gets only a half a season suspension, which we don't want to, you know, we don't want to obviously speculate on, but he would be there for both of those games. They play the Steelers in Pittsburgh. They play the Titans in Tennessee. They play the Chiefs. They play um, we um, they play at Tampa Bay. They play at New England. They play our Bills before closing out the season with those Ravens. So the Bengals, to me, are going to have to get off to a fast start because November and December is going to be tough game after tough game after tough game against AFC teams that they are competing with, not only for playoff spots, 
but playoff seeding. You mentioned the Ravens. Such a fascinating rivalry that's building here because last year in the second matchup against the Ravens, the Bengals won 41 to 21. Joe Burrow had over 500 yards passing and John Harbaugh made a comment that the Bengals were running up the score. Interesting to note, Marcus Peters did not play. Humphrey did not play. Both of those guys, assuming health, will be back. Kyle Hamilton will be there. So the Ravens are a proud organization. You've mentioned that many times over. You think the Ravens are going to be back and better this year um, than a lot of people expect. And you just know the Ravens have circled both of those playoff games, particularly the, the defensive backs that watched their teammates get blown out last year when the backups were on the field. That is going to be must-see TV. I, I I know one of those games is on primetime. It is in week, it's on October 9th at 720. I cannot wait for these Bengals-Ravens games. To me, this is the new rivalry in the AFC North until further notice. Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, you got a good uniform matchup. You have teams that don't like each other. Let's Let's get it. I love this about sports. When you have two teams that do it the right way that hate each other, like that's what I want out of sports. I will be sitting there with my popcorn and my soda, just enjoying every minute of that game, probably pulling for the Ravens, but we shall see Luca. Any final thoughts on these Bengals? Um, they obviously didn't make it to the Super Bowl last year. They did the thing that the bills couldn't do, even though they didn't close it out. Um, I guess I do have one more question for you. If you could do the 2020 draft over again, would you take Burrow or Herbert? Knowing oh. what you know now, <laughs> I hit you with a blindside one to end the oh show. Oh my goodness! Oh, oh Artua. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Jordan Love. Sorry. Go <laughs> yeah. ahead. Oh my God! Yeah, you really blindsided me with that. Um, so this is going to be probably an unpopular opinion. I'm going with Joey Burrow. I really am. I love Herbert. I actually think Herbert might be the more gifted quarterback, but the untangibles of Joey Burrow and that swag, the confidence, the belief, the unbelievable understanding of who he is and what he can do and what he wants to do. I feel like that's something that I mean, if you put that into Herbert, it would just be godly, right? I I don't think that Herbert doesn't have that belief and stuff like that. I just think the level of which Joe Burrow believes in himself and where he puts himself and what he thinks he can be able to do just elevates him to the level of play that he puts himself at. Um, I think I go with Joey Burrow just because also, again, that's just the style of quarterback I love to root for. Um, it, this is me talking. This is now, if you were to be like, if you were a GM, if I'm the Bengals in 2020, who do I want to take? I probably ever so slightly go with Herbert, but it's a, you can do no wrong situation. How about we put it that way? You can do no wrong between those two. I personally love Joe Burrow. I love everything that comes with the personality of it on top of the skill. Herbert just is probably higher ceiling skill. Um, so the smart say, I guess would be Herbert, but man, I just love Joe Burrow. I love the swag. I love everything about him. Like I am very, very excited for the, like, I hope Joe Burrow versus Josh Allen becomes a regular thing. 
I want this matchup to be a regular thing. I think the downfall of that becoming a regular thing is the fact that, I mean, the Ravens are always going to be there for the bills. You would think for the foreseeable future, uh, barring the Patriots really turning things around and Mac Jones, maybe becoming a better quarterback or, you know, Zach Wilson really swags himself up and actually can carry the jets from being just a laughable, just joke of an organization and maybe do stuff. We know he's and got that dog in him. He's got that dog, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, Zach. Can't wait to talk about that next week. <laughs> um, and then there's the dolphins, which Josh Allen will always be the daddy of. Um, the bills are going to be winning their division. So it's always going to be, who are they playing the division winners of the Bengals? Unfortunately are going to have the Ravens, the Steelers. You would imagine as we've discussed are going to be in the circumstance and situation in the future. It might not be this year. So going into next year, but in the future, you would imagine they're going to be back. And then the Browns are the Browns, but so the Bengals have a lot of work ahead of them to make that matchup a regular thing. But man, Joe Burrow versus Josh Allen. I mean, Big Dick Allen versus Joe Swag. Oh, just a beautiful matchup that I will love to watch in the future. And I cannot wait for this season. So yeah, back to your question so I can stop rambling now. <laughs> Me personally, I take Joe Burrow. I think the Bengals would probably say Herbert, but I don't think they're at all upset about Burrow. And I I don't think there's a Bengals fan out there that would probably say Herbert because they have just fallen deeply in love with the ability and swag that is Joe Swag Burrow. So I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to say Herbert, but you said the key thing. There's not a wrong answer here. Both of these guys are excellent. Both of these guys are going to win a lot of games for their teams. And both of these guys should be competing for Super Bowls for the next decade. I've just fallen in love with watching Josh Allen play football. And to me, Justin Herbert is the closest thing to Josh Allen when it comes to skill set, size, ability to pull things out of his ass when things start going wrong um, in the league. So I'm a big Justin Herbert guy. I would lean Herbert in that I do want to touch on Daxton Hill very quick just to tie something up because that's actually something I want to compliment the Bengals on. When you're a team that makes it to the Super Bowl and you become within an eyelash of winning the championship, it's very easy to fall into the trap of having a short-sighted offseason. What hurt us in the Super Bowl? Well, we couldn't block anybody. So what we're going to do is we're just going to dump all of our assets into the offensive line. Um, in a lot of ways, you could say the Chiefs did that when they drafted Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Like, it's almost never a good idea to take a non-dynamic running back in the first round, and the Chiefs did it. To me, I want to compliment the Bengals on this: is they didn't force the offensive line issue. They didn't force a need here. They took a player that you and I were both very high on in the draft in Daxton Hill, and he's somebody that he could play safety, play, could play corner. He might take a little bit to get into the flow of the NFL because maybe they're going to try him out at multiple positions to see where he gets. But to me, two to three years from now, they're just going to have an excellent player on their hands. And, you know, maybe depending on what happens with Jesse Bates, they're very thankful they took a safety in the first round of the draft. We shall see. I think Jesse Bates is also excellent. So Luca, the question to end all questions, we have talked about the AFC North tonight. And just to put a bow on that, Let's talk about when those games are. The Bills kick off their AFC North schedule in week number four, October 2nd at a 1 p.m. kickoff in Baltimore. Then the next week, they come back home and play the Pittsburgh Steelers, another 1 p.m. kickoff game. And then we don't see another AFC North team until week number 11, a third 1 p.m. kick. All these games are at 1 p.m., Luca, so far. The Bills host maybe Deshaun Watson and the Cleveland Browns, 
And then just an absolute beauty in week 17, Monday night football, Bills at Bengals. That game could have a lot on the line. Luca, four games against the AFC North. We've dove into this division tonight. What is your acceptable record in these four games? Acceptable record is two and two. Expected record is three and one. And I will tell you that my loss is the first of the matchups, and that is at Baltimore. I, The Baltimore game is probably the only one that me personally is a true 50-50 game. Even to the points of what we brought up way long ago, it seems like now in this podcast when we brought up the Ravens, where you were discussing how some of these players might, might not be ready. They might not be a full health roster. The Ravens, to me, are the team that they have the best quarterback. They they have the most threatening quarterback. They have the scariest team in the sense of they can break open a game on the Bills. When it comes to the Steelers, I don't see Kenny Pickett or Trubisky doing that. When it comes to the Browns, yes, there's the running game that is Chubb and um, Hunt and everything that they entail. It's just the Browns to me, I kind of am looking at like, I don't care what they look like on paper. I don't care what they've done in the past. As you brought up, I don't even know why we talked about what they did last season. They are a totally different team. I have no idea what they're going to do. I'm not even going to look at them and be like, oh my God, I'm scared of Chubb and Hunt. The noise from outside might be just so burdening on them that they can't do anything on the field worth of note. And then there's the Cincinnati Bengals, which are a very, very good team. But I feel like we kind of match up against the Bengals very well. The Bengals are not a team that are really going to control the ball and, you know, just pound the rock and just completely take us out of a game or try to at least. They kind of want to show, you know, shell the ball around, really toss it around and stuff like that. And at that point in the season, especially Trey White is hopefully back and healthy and in full effect, 100%. And our secondary is rolling. Our team as a whole is rolling. I don't see how the Bengals, I wouldn't call that a 50-50 game. I would call that, a let's say, 55-45 in the Bills' favor. Still a very tight game. It's just I still favor the Bills. I think it kind of, we match up against the Bengals very well. It's why when... When the unfortunate thing happened last year of the Bengals beating the Titans and the reality of whoever wins, you know, the Chiefs Bills game was going to be hosting that AFC championship. God, I thought we weren't going to bring it up this week and now you're the one doing it. I'm going to do it. When that reality came (laughs) in and it was really in our heads, Mm. I was like, we are so perfect for the Bengals. And that was before we even had Von Miller and everything that we've done in this offseason. It's like, oh my God, we can do this. Like, we are perfectly matched up for the Bengals. We can absolutely do this. And the Bengals did address their offensive line, as we talked about. They did do a smart thing like drafting Dax Hill. I will say, I, it might have come off like I didn't like it. I agreed with it. It's just some might have questioned it. That's kind of where I was going with the yeah. Dax Hill thing. Um, they did smart things. It's just, again, I think the bills just match up so well against what they try to do philosophically and what they want to achieve as a team. It's like, yeah, we can take on the Bengals and we are better and deeper than the Bengals. We are even better than 
like if you just put them like, you know, it's in like bowling terms. If you lead off the team, you should kind of be beating the score you're playing against in a team game. If you're the closer, the fourth guy, you should beat the fourth guy. So let's do this. QB to QB. I like Josh Allen. Wide receiver to wide receiver. Jamar Chase, maybe some people take, but I like Diggs just as much. Very, very good. They might have the deeper team when it comes to wide receiver three, but I'm not going to throw that in here. Joe Mixon probably checks it over Singletary, but after that, it's all Bills. Everything. Go down the list. It is just Bills, 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 Bills. Head coach even. Bills. It's like what are we doing here? We, and then they like to throw it around. That's the strength of our defense. Our safeties do not allow the top to get blown off. Jamar chase is not going to be just catching streaks on us all day long. It's not going to happen. I don't care what any Bengals fan says. It's never going to happen. So to that regard, I think we match up well against the Bengals, And I just see that being a bills win barring anything. Absolutely crazy. So the Ravens game week four is the only one where I really fear a loss coming. So in reality, it's the NFL. Say Deshaun Watson, even though he hasn't touched a football field at that point, if he only gets suspended for half a year, hasn't hadn't touched a football field in the season and a half, he's coming out there, he's three weeks or four weeks out of his suspension and say he somehow pulls it out of his ass and beats us. It's still like you lose to the Ravens. You shouldn't be losing to the Steelers. That's the only game you realistically shouldn't be losing. It's one o'clock at home. Like, do not lose that fucking game. Just whatever you do, do not lose that fucking game. It's like the easiest game in a weird way. That and the Dolphins are kind of in that early slate. Those are your easy games, right? Josh Allen goes to Miami, be Miami's daddy one more time, and a one o'clock home game against a weaker Steelers. Please win those fucking games. But maybe the Cleveland game, some might think. Obviously, some might think the Cincinnati game is a more 50-50 game. To me, I think we match up very well against Cincinnati once again. So that's a maybe 55-45. Cleveland, realistically, again, the noise outside is going to be too crazy for them. I say it's probably 60-40, maybe even better in favor of the Bills. And then the Steelers, I would probably say, is like 65-35. Bills should be winning that game. Ravens 50-50, acceptable 2-2. Two and two. I expect 3-1. and one. I will say, I do think, unfortunately, the Bills will lose in Baltimore. That's just a tough environment against a good team, a motivated team, to turn things around and start out the gates hot. That's kind of where it's like, ah, shit. And then, hopefully, if they do end up, unfortunately, losing that game, they can be motivated and not have the Steelers game be a fucking you know dud. And they'd want to get back on track as they, I think the week after that is the Kansas City game. So you want to go into that strong rather than on a two-game losing streak. So that's kind of where I see it all together. Two and two is acceptable, but I would expect us to be three and one. Before I give my answer, let's check Twitter because we did ask the question earlier, what will the Bills record be in four games against the AFC North? A friend of the show backup host of this show Stokes says I'm saying two and two with one loss being a coin flip game not sure where Stokes was going with that coin flip thing I feel like he might have been trying to (laughs) make fun of Josh Allen for calling tails there in overtime against Kansas City uh Timothy says three and one with a loss to the Bengals and I do apologize sir I do not mean to butcher your name here Tumez is what I'm going with T-U-M-E-Z three and one some team gets lucky lol um thank you all for uh 
giving your predictions there. We definitely appreciate it. Anytime we get a prediction, we'll read it on the air. I am with Tumez and I am with Timothy. I'm going to go three and one. I think that's where the floor is because you know, you have the home game against the Steelers. I don't care if it's Mitch Trubisky. I don't care if it's Kenny Pickett. You have to win that game if you're a team with Super Bowl aspirations in your building. I'm well aware of what happened last year when the Steelers showed up in Buffalo. I don't think they're going to block a punt again. I don't think the offense is going to take three quarters to get anything going again. I do think the Bills will take care of business there. Uh, we talked about the Browns being an absolute tire fire. If Deshaun Watson is playing and is playing well, I think that game will be cause for concern. But overall, you have one really ro- well-run organization and another one that just keeps chasing its tail. That game is in Buffalo. The Bills need to win that game as well. Then you split somehow, some way with the Ravens and the Bengals. I think the Bills are better than both of those teams, but not by much. Both of those teams are obviously respectable. And when you have the quarterbacks those teams have, they can beat anybody on any given day. And I think that the Bills match up better with, than the, with the Ravens than with the Bengals. I hear everything you're saying about the strength of the Bills defense being the pass defense. I just think that the Bengals are better suited to keep up with the Bills if it becomes a little bit of a track meet. So, Luca, this was fun. And we have one round left of Rivals Watch and it's next week. I cannot wait for next week's show, Luca. Not only because are we going to talk about the AFC East and dive into the Jets and the Dolphins and the Patriots, but we are going to have some Bills training camp to get into, some practice reports. And, you know, we don't want to give any spoiler alerts away just yet, but I just think, based on what you just said about Miami, I think you're going to be annoyed with me next week when I start talking about games that make me nervous on the schedule. (laughs) <laughs> Please tell me you're not nervous about the Dolphins. Come on now. I mean, you know me. I get nervous about anything. I, I I'm that True. guy that before you know the Bills can be hosting the Detroit Lions and be a 14 point favorite, and I'll be like, well, you know, um, Jared Goff could oh. have a good day. You know, that's just no, me. I- but there's just something about the Dolphins. I think that we'll, we'll get into it next week. We'll get into it next week. There but. You go. Next week's show, we will have training camp to talk about. We will obviously continue this edition of Rivals Watch, and we will be inching ever so closer to the start of the regular season, and we will be within a stone's throw of the Bills' first preseason game. We appreciate you guys listening, and we will talk to you next time on Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Follow us on Twitter if you're not already, at Bills Chat Pod. And also be sure to subscribe to this channel on whatever platform it is you choose to spend your time listening to us every week. Look forward to talking to you all again next time.